You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Nicholas Weiss. I'm a nurse practitioner at the Royal Children's Hospital in ED and currently work as an education fellow in the Education Hub. Today, I have John Cheek. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming. No worries, Nick. John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Nick, I'm a paediatric emergency physician uh, who works in ED at the Royal Children's. I've been doing it for over a decade now. And I'm here to talk about a paediatric ECG. Right. You've asked me to anyway. Yes. <laughs> this is a topic I find really interesting. Um, and I think I find it so interesting because over these the years I've been a nurse working with both adults and kids, I remember being so confused by ECGs. And, you know, it was like a different language. It was a waveform that really meant nothing. It was a squiggle. And I remember speaking to doctors when I was a grad nurse and, and them trying to explain to me what was going on, but really just not picking up the ball. And so over time, with a lot of teaching, you know, it slowly started to form. And it makes a bit more sense. And I understand the kind of basics um, of the language. I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Imagine all emergency trainees' experiences are similar because I remember studying for my uh, fellowship exam having been a senior registrar for a few years in large tertiary emergency departments where you're kind of in charge overnight and they hand you the ECG and you have a look at it and you tick it or sign it or whatever. I remember studying the exam and thinking, how on earth did they let me sign these things when I didn't really know what I was doing? And and I think you're right, the basics are so important. You, you've really got to understand what the ECG is and how it's generated and what it's actually looking at and the physiology behind squiggles that you're seeing before you can really do anything else. But but if you understand the basics and you remember the basics, you can pretty much work out most things from first principles. That, that's that's the key to me. Speaking of basics, what is an ECG? <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> Rather than talking about the mechanics, I think it's good to have an analogy with, with most things that are complicated to understand. So there are a couple of ways to think about an ECG, but the way I like is it's a bit like a map. You know, a map is a, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional space, and an ECG is very similar. So what the ECG really does is it measures electrical potential between two points and graphs it. And that's why there are so many leads in an ECG, because to understand what's going on in a three-dimensional object, you need to look at it from more than one direction. So the leads are all like, and you hear people talk about the views of an ECG, and that mm -hmm. always seems like a bit of an esoteric concept to me, but it, really what it's showing you is the electrical potential that is occurring looking at the heart from different directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The ECG that we most commonly associate or that we most commonly look at when we try and assess a heart is a 12-lead ECG, um, and that's made up of the limb leads and the chest leads, which look at the heart from different points. And when you put the limb electrodes on and the you know, what the ECG machine can do is it can calculate the center of the heart based on the ECG leads and where they are. And it can look at the electrical potential activity from both any direction from the leads and from that calculated central point. Mm -hmm. So that's where all the, the naming nomenclature comes from. So You've got the classic limb leads, one, two, and three, which just look at, look at um, electrical potential from one lead to another. 
And then you've got the augmented limb leads, which look at the electrical potential from that calculated center out to whichever augmented lead you're talking about. Mm. And then you've got the chest leads, which look at the electrical potential from the calculated center out towards whichever chest lead electrode is on the chest. That's the V1 to V6. Yeah, that's the V1 to V6. Um, Obviously, in pediatrics, we look at some other leads as well, but we can talk about that a little bit later if we can be bothered. But well, no, I'd be interested. We, yeah, we often do 15 lead ECG um, and that's really adding some, um, you know, some leads on the right hand side of the chest. And then we, you know, add on a cheeky little V7 as well. Why? Yeah. So it's because in pediatrics, the heart of a baby is a bit different to the heart of an adult. So if you think about an adult, the biggest bit of their heart is the left ventricle which kind of sits down and to the left. Um, in the fetal circulation, so in, in, you know, before you're born, the right side of your heart is doing a lot of work, and that right-sided predominance lasts for a while after you're born. So the right side of the heart is actually very important in pediatrics, and in addition to that, in pediatrics we're looking for different things. So the ECG was really designed to look for you know, ischemia really. Mm. And obviously in an adult, that's super important. And it's still the main reason people do ECGs in adults and why everything looks to, or a lot of stuff looks to the left. Cause that's where, you know, the bulk of the heart muscle is where the bulk of the blood supply uh, to the cardiac muscle is. And it's, it's, you know, I- important in children. We need to get a good look at the right side as well, because we're not looking so much for ischemia, although that can be important in some pediatric heart disease, but we're looking for evidence of structural abnormality. And so that's why we do the right-sided leads. Again, in emergency medicine, we're really looking for different things than the cardiologists are looking for. And to be honest, when you show me an ECG in the department, the sorts of stuff I'm looking for, I'm not very focused on the right side because mm-hmm. um, I'm looking for you know electrical uh, potentiation differences and abnormalities rather than mm. trying to determine the structure of the heart by looking at the ECG. So you mentioned that there is a bit of a difference in the pediatric heart and the, the adult heart, but how does the age influence the interpretation of the ECGs and how it looks between you know, pediatrics and adults and why? The heart obviously changes after you're born to go from kind of that, that neonatal right-sided dominance to the adult-like left-sided dominance, and obviously that varies in, in people, but we usually say that, you know, by about four, four years of age-ish, the ECG more resembles that of an adult. There are still some things that can hang around for a long time. There's some juvenile uh, electrical patterns that can hang around for, for much longer. But, you know, obviously the first thing that people will notice in pediatric ECGs is a different in difference in rate, and, that you know, that that's really important and changes the way that we're able to interpret a lot of the other waveforms that happen on the ECG. Um, you know, so a newborn can have a rate of up to 150 and that, that can be not concerning, whereas once you get over about six years of age, the, the rate kind of sits more, sits more at 80 to 100. So it's kind of more of that adult-type adult, adult type rate. The other stuff that you'll notice is when they've still got that right-sided dominance, if you're used to looking at adult ECGs, it looks like right-sided strain. You know, 
T-Wave inversions that are particularly prominent in V1 to 6, and that kind of juvenile T-Wave pattern can actually last for much longer than the age of four, so it, it can it can you know hang around to early adolescence. There's obviously right axis deviation, and we can talk a little bit about axis if you want. It's a, <laughs> it's an annoying topic. And there's a dominant R-wave in V1. So just all the things you expect with, with right ventricular strain. So the little kids will always have that, and it can throw you if you're not you're not expecting it. I anticipate a lot of people moving into pediatrics, trained or um, you know started off with adult ECGs, and then have to when they work in pediatrics, kind of interpret or change or adapt their ECG interpretation to pediatrics. I mean, that was my experience learning at adults. Despite working in pediatric emergency for quite a long time, I still find this slight scariness to it. Have you found that in the junior medical staff that you work with? Is there any particular worries that they're, you know, they're, they're um, verbalizing to? Yeah, everyone's missed about missing, everyone's worried about missing something. I mean, obviously people worry about that in adults too, but when you first start looking at pediatric ECGs, they do look odd. It's not just the right ventricular strain, but there's also, uh, you know, there's Q, there's inferior and left-sided Q waves, which which are normal in in children, but look like they've had an inf- an infarct if you're not expecting it. And all the intervals are shorter because you know, obviously, if you think about what the waves actually represent, which is you know depolarization waves essentially, you know, the hearts are smaller, so the intervals are shorter. Because um, things don't take as long to depolarize, but that that can look you know, quite odd if you're used to looking at an ECG. And everyone who starts working in pediatrics hears the stories of, you know, the conduction abnormality in particular that someone's had missed and the child's gone on to die from you know, classically um, a hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, and the um, evidence was there in the ECG that was taken two or three years ago. Is that really mm. common? And of course it's not common, but it's what people worry about. Human nature. It is human nature. And I think you know, one of the biggest differences between children and adults is actually picking when to do an ECG. Speaking of when to do the ECG, I mean, we really try to minimize the tests we do, you know, the appropriate test that's going to answer the, you know, the appropriate question we have for the child, depending on what, what's, you know, what they've come in with. What information do you actually gain from an ECG? Yeah, what a great question. Um, again, looking at from the adult lens, we do ECG for chest pain. Um, we do it for other things too, but chest pain is, is kind of the thing that everyone wants an ECG for. In pediatrics, I like to think of an ECG as a tool for chest pain plus. So you need chest pain plus something else um, for the ECG to be, you know, diagnostically valuable. So chest pain plus syncope or chest pain plus palpitations or chest pain plus shortness of breath. Mm. Um, and what are you looking for? Well, you're looking for, and this is where, you know, people can start making a list of things to look up. And I'm sure you'll ask me about resources later on. But the things that you need to think about are, you know, structural and conduction abnormalities. So arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You need to think about arrhythmias, so things that cause pre-excitation, Wolf-Parkinson-White, uh, all of those kinds of kind of uh, arrhythmogenic conditions. And then the final thing that you're looking for is acquired structural heart disease. So you're looking for essentially an acquired cardiomyopathy, um, and and that's kind of one that's often hardest to pick and and the signs are quite subtle which is why as with any test we do on children 
you need to be knowing what you're looking for doing the test because if you're just doing it to do it, it doesn't really add much. You've got to know what you're looking for, know what the likelihood of that condition happening happening is and use the test to help you risk stratify. Um, so know what you're looking for, I think, is the key. Yeah. I remember during the COVID pandemic, we had a lot of adolescents in particular that came in with, with chest pain. So what I'm hearing is it's really important to have other inf- you know, information that really supports the ECG to make a decision. So history, are there any particular things in the history that would be really important? Let's say, for example, a common you know, syncopal episode um, in an adolescent. What kind of questions would you ask and want to know? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So with syncope, you're thinking about, is it cardiac syncope? Is it neurologic syncope? Or is it something more benign? So as with everything in ED, we're trying to find significant causes that can change outcome because we want to diagnose that in the emergency department or at least put them on a pathway to diagnosis. So if you're talking about cardiac syncope, you get cardiac syncope for two reasons, um, and it's all to do with cardiac output. Either you don't generate enough cardiac output, and so you collapse, and that happens in things like you know, an obstructive cardiomyopathy where you can't get, get the blood out and you don't generate that cardiac output and you get, you know, your brain gets a bit hypoxic and you fall down. Or it's rate-related cardiac syncope. So your heart's going very, very fast, so it can't generate the cardiac output to keep the blood going around and, and you get end organ dysfunction and you collapse. Mm. What, kind, what kind of conditions would you see in obstructive? Uh, what, what kind of conditions what, cause obstructive cardiomyopathy? Yeah. So, um, you know, the classic is, uh, you know, a hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, which is, you know, an, acqui- an unacquired disease. It's a congenital disease. You're kind of born with it and it develops as you get older and, and as you exert, as you increase the demands on the heart, uh, the heart can't keep up, it can't push the blood out and you fall down. And that's, you know, that classic running around, doing exercise, playing football in the adolescent who collapses. Whereas the rate-related stuff, you know, the story more classically is associated with palpitations because it feels weird to have whatever your cause of palpitation is, whether it's SVT or, you know, uh, an intermittent malignant rhythm. Um, it feels odd. It causes pain or palpitations, and then you get a collapse associated with that. So that's what you look for in the history. Um, the other really important one that I think has come to the fore a little bit more since COVID is the cardiomyopathy uh, diagnosis. So, you know, if you, if you cast your mind back a year or two ago to when we were in the middle of COVID and everyone was getting the new types of vaccines, there was an association with, you know, a, a cardiomyopathy with some of those vaccines. And that just changes the way the heart muscle works and the heart muscle functions and can also cause arrhythmias. And the story, though, with those people wasn't ever that impressive because the cardiomyopathy that kids got with the vaccines wasn't a particular worry, as I'm sure you remember most of them just resolved without, without any intervention. But there are some cardiomyopathies that happen in kids that are really significant, particularly post-viral cardiomyopathies, and they can essentially get heart failure as a complication of that. And so the questions you're asking for in history are very similar to those that you would look for in an adult with heart failure. So, you know, do they get shortness of breath? Is it continual? Is it associated with their chest pain? Do they get palpitations as well? Do they get more short of breath when they're lying down? Do they get more short of breath 
as they, than they normally would when they exercise. So it's all those all those kinds of questions. Um, so again, history, you're looking for palpitations, pain, shortness of breath, and syncope. Any big, big red flags in history? Well, I think syncope on exertion is one that the cardiologists always talk about, and syncope with palpitations is another one. If you have syncope plus or chest pain plus, then you need to do something. Right. And family history can be quite important. I know that the cardiologists like to know, you know as much as they can about <laughs> And I found it quite a difficult um, question to ask in a um, subtle way, or it always sounds much more serious when you say, you know, have, do you have any family members that have suddenly passed away or yeah. died under yeah. the age of 45? Well, it's the sudden cat death question, isn't it? How do you word it? What's your Well, it's, it's harder. So really you're looking for close relatives who have, who have had sudden un- or unexplained or sometimes explained, although usually if it's explained cardiac death, then everyone in the family's had genetic testing and whatever, so they've already looked for their their, their cardiac cause death risk factors. But, you know, sudden unexplained death in young people. And you do have to be careful how you word it, because if you word it the wrong way, you hear about, you know, Uncle Pete who had a heart attack at yes. 65, and that's not really the information you're after. So you do have to figure out a way that that you don't mind asking it, and I, you know, I, as I get older, I get blunter, and I, <laughs> I do uh, ask, you know, have any of your close relatives died unexpectedly um, when they were less than fifty, and and everyone yeah. kind of looks into space a little bit and has a bit of a think, but that that's you've just got to be direct because it's important information. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other information that the pediatric cardiologists specifically want to know? The most important question for them is why are you doing the ECG? Because, uh, you know, as we've touched on, pediatric ECGs often have a lot of noise. <laughs> um, there's often a lot of subtle conduction abnormalities. And because you're listening to me on, on a podcast, you can't see my air quotes, but they're abnormalities that are actually normal um, in the context of an otherwise normal child, um, particularly, you know, subtle bundle branch blocks and things like that. But in the context of, Certain symptomatology or looking for certain certain disease processes can be more concerning. So the most important question for the cardiologist is always, well, why on it? Why are you sending me this ECG? Why are you doing this ECG? What am I looking for? Um, and what were their symptoms that made you want to do the ECG? Because then they, they can construct more of a picture around the patient, which makes it much easier to to read the squiggly lines. And are we answering the same question? As they are, if that makes sense. Um, so we're much more interested in, in, I mean, yes, we are, but we're more interested in the now. So we're much more interested in, you know, is there a conduction abnormality that I'm looking for? Is there, you know, signs of pre-excitation that I'm looking for? Um, they're looking for the same things, but they're much better at working out, is there a subtle conduction change that could represent something that is more significant. You will have heard people say the most common ECG in a lot of these conditions is actually a normal ECG. Actually, what's more common is that there are very subtle signs of um, the problems with conduction that you need to have a lot of experience and you need to have looked at thousands of ECGs to really pick up. So they're looking for the same things, but they're much better at picking up the subtle, the subtle features. And it comes back to what I was saying at the start, which is to be able to read the ECG, you need to know what 
all the lines and squiggles and intervals mean. Because if you see something that you don't recognize, if you know what that line represents, is it ventricular depolarization? Is it, you know, you know, nodal firing? If you know what it represents, you can work out what's not working properly and at the very least have an intelligent discussion with someone that knows more about the ECG. Yeah. And for context, all of our ECGs we do are sent to a paediatric cardiologist. Yeah. So in, in our center, we, we send all of our emergency department performed ECGs to our paediatric cardiologists to read, you know, in a day or two's time. And obviously not every center has that luxury. They will occasionally pick up something that we miss. Has that happened? And yes, it has happened. So particularly subtle signs of cardiomyopathies and, and things like that. And there was one, there was one, you know, classic one where the only sign on the ECG was a little bit of decreased voltage, I think, from memory. Um, but the presentation of the child, although this particular child was well um, in the department, was a history of a little bit of niggly chest pain with some shortness of breath. And the cardiologist said, ah, oh, a little bit of shortness of breath little bit of chest pain, voltages are a bit lower than I would expect for that age, and maybe this is a more significant cardiomyopathy, we should probably have a look at that child again. And sure enough, the child had a very significant cardiomyopathy and had a really good outcome because we brought them back, but had they not been brought back, they could have had a sudden cardiac death in the community. So yes, there, there is a reason that we do that. But you also have to remember that the population that we see here is very different to the population that goes to, you know, kind of urban and community uh, emergency departments, so not, not tertiary emergency departments. So we have a bit of a, you know, high yield for these things. Um, so whilst it's very important that all our ECGs go to a cardiologist, it's probably not so critical in non-tertiary centres, but it is important that if you're looking at a paediatric ECG, you know the principles of what's different and the significant things that you're looking for. And if you're not sure, speaking to a, an expert. And if you're not sure, then you don't always have to speak to an expert right then, but y you should punt it up the line. And let's say you have a pediatric ECG in front of you. Where do you start? It's exactly the same. So you obviously need a systematic way of looking at an ECG, but the systematic way that I use is exactly the same as the way that I look at an adult ECG. So you look at rate, you look at rhythm, you look at axis you look at waves and you look at intervals and it's, it's exactly the same. The numbers are different and obviously they they change at age, but it's important to have the systematic approach. Once you've looked at a thousand, you probably don't need to run through it all in your head one after the other, but when you start off, you should. And when you start off as well as having it in a systematic way, try and think about what the thing you're looking at represents. So, you know, when you look at the QRS, you look at it and you think it's ventricular depolarization. When you're trying to calculate the access, you think, well, I'm actually looking at, you know, the QRS and ventricular axis. So what does that mean in terms of the way the heart's pointing and the way the heart looks? And if you do that, you know, a dozen times, it kind of becomes much easier to do. But I have found that if you don't do it for a period of time, like you do it, you get really good at it, and then you don't look at an ECG for three or four months, 
my skills certainly atrophy. I don't know about yours. It, it can happen quite easily. Yeah, it happens quite quickly. And mm. I find I, I sometimes have to go back. And even now, you know, I deliver teaching about ECGs all the time. I'm always talking about ECGs. Even now, if I have a month off, I'm like, oh, I better just look that up. <laughs> I better just look yeah. that up. So you, you, you have to, you know, realize that this stuff, if you're not, if it's not the only thing you do, well, it's, it's true like, for a lot of our yeah. skills, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> It's the curse of the generalist, Nick. Yes, a specialty in itself. If you're new to interpreting ECGs, what are some tips and tricks about doc, you know, important things to document in your notes? About yeah. ECG? Yeah. Well, so, so, I mean, for pediatrics, you need to be documenting the things you have to be thinking about. So, rate, rhythm, regularity, axis. I always make sure I document the key things that I'm looking for to rule out pathology. So, it depends a little bit on why I've done the ECG, but I specifically talk about whether there's any signs that make me worried about pre-excitation, um, and I particularly look for any signs of bundle branch block or you know downstream conduction abnormality, and I document those. And then that that's about all I do, uh, unless I I see something else. So you don't have to document the absence of everything. <laughs> I just hit the key points. Mm. Sinus arrhythmia seems yeah. to be the common, the most common arrhythmia that we see in children. And, you know, I often pick it up when I'm feeling their pulse or I'm, you know, auscultating their heart. And then I, I sometimes struggle to decide, you know, have they had a baseline ECG? Should we do an ECG on this patient? A- any thoughts on Yeah, again, I, if, if all I'm doing is feeling, you know, a sinus arrhythmia, and again, you have to have felt, I mean, you have to take kids' pulses and listen to their hearts and to, to know what that sounds like as opposed to a to a true arrhythmia, but I don't do an ECG if all I'm worried about is a sinus arrhythmia or, or, you know, this really subtle arrhythmia at a normal rate that's not regular. Sinus arrhythmias can be really prominent in kids and it has to do with, you know, their chest wall compliance and the shapes of their chest and their small hearts and the way they're huffing and puffing and breathing very quickly. And it's very normal and it's very prominent and it can, if you're not used to seeing it, Again, it can be, it's so prominent that you, you can, you can, you know, misdiagnose an actual arrhythmia. But again, when you're looking at the ECG, it's important to, you know, match the QRS to the P wave, make sure there's one for everyone and expect to see a sinus arrhythmia in, in the pediatric ECGs you look at. This is the, one of my bugbears about ECGs is people doing one without trying to think through in their head, well, what am I actually worried about? Mm. And it's not, it's not just the sinus arrhythmia, it's the you know, the bradycardic ECG, you know, kids often, well, they often get <laughs> sleep bradycardia. It's very common in kids. And, you know, the, the bradycardia indication for an ECG is <laughs> a little frustrating. Um, yeah, sure, they can get heart blocks, but it, it's not common. And if they have a heart block, it's a very, very low rate. It's not, it's not like a four-year-old with a heart rate of 65. <laughs> it, mm. it, it's a slow rate. So I, 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 do, I do think we do too many ECGs and we confuse ourselves unnecessarily. And it's not like any test. It seems like it should be a really easy, simple, you know, low cost, low yield investigation. But an ECG in a kid, it can be really hard. And I've seen, I have seen children sedated for an ECG that probably didn't need to happen in the first place. Like any test. Think about why you're doing it and what question it's going to answer. What other tests might be helpful in conjunction with an ECG? Great question. 
The one that's done a lot, particularly in the context of chest pain, is a chest X-ray. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but people need to be really clear about what they're looking for. In my mind, there are probably two things you're looking for. One is cardiomegaly, you know, cardiomyopathy, or an undiagnosed congenital heart disorder. Fairly unlikely in this day and age, but it does happen. Or you're looking for a pneumothorax. Mm, yeah. I think you have to have a history and an examination, or, you know, one or the other, that's at least partially consistent with one of those things for you to do that investigation. Other investigations, I, you know, there's nothing that, that is particularly useful, and I would particularly encourage people not to do blood tests mm. unless you're long, a long way down the diagnostic pathway. Blood testing kids aren't easy. Mm. You know, it's, it's traumatic and, it, you know, it's hard to get bloods in children sometimes. If you're genuinely worried about, you know, myocardial damage, due to your, which really, again, we're really talking about cardiomyopathies in, in kids, um, then a troponin may add to that. But I don't do it routinely unless I'm asking that specific question. In particular, if you have a kid with a tachyarrhythmia and you send a troponin, I don't really know what question that's answering. Because kids get troponin leak like anyone else. When they're really, really tachycardic, they, their troponins do go up. And I don't know what to do with that information when, <laughs> when I find it. Yep. So I'd rather not. If I know what's causing it, if I've found the tachyarrhythmia, if they've come in with SVT, the troponin doesn't add to my treatment pathway. So I don't do it. And if it's not there, it doesn't matter. And if it is there, it doesn't matter. So it can help with Sometimes subtle cardiomyopathies, because they do sometimes get a little bit of troponin leakage, and if they've got a story and a history that's a bit consistent with it and the ECG is a bit kind of equivocal, if they've got a troponin rise, I'm like, okay, well, this kid now needs to come into hospital and have an echo because I'm worried about cardiomyopathy. I've got some evidence that there might be something going on with their cardiac muscle, so let's bring them in. It can be useful in that context. The other test I don't like very much is a D-dimer, because again, D-dimers as a risk stratification tool, and I'm, I'm straying a little bit into the field of adult emergency medicine where my knowledge may be somewhat outdated, but D-dimers are used as a risk stratification tool for people with you know, low risk of a PE. Children, almost by definition, have an ultra low risk for a PE. So again, your pretest probability is ultra low risk, and you're adding a test that's not designed to to help you risk stratify that population. Now, children do get PEs, but you know, I, 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 they, they get PEs for reasons that are different to the reasons that adults get PEs, and those are the reasons that a lot of those risk stratification studies have been studied in, not the pediatric reasons. So I would counsel against doing that. Mm. I think if you're so worried a child may have had a PE that you really think they must get a D-dimer, you probably need to... Uh, talk to somebody else and think about other tests you might want to do. Yeah. SPs and AMIs are really common in adults. Are there any particular patient cohorts that they're higher risk that, you know, your kind of spidey senses go up? Yeah. So, I mean, patient, obviously patients with procoagulant clotting disorders, you, you know, which we do see in children, you need to, you need to worry about, you know, children with sickle cell. There, there are um, some... You know, teenagers do have heart attacks. It's not to say they don't. So the kids with lots and lots of clear risk factors, like they're very obese and they're sedentary and they come from a you know cultural profile where ischemic heart disease is more common, 
that, you know, and they come in with this classic ischemic sounding story, then mm. I would go down an ischemia pathway. But but we just don't do that very often in, in children. And I can't actually remember the last time I diagnosed a child with a lifestyle factor related heart attack. I know it's happened, but I can't, I know I have, but I can't remember. It was a long time ago. So it doesn't happen very often. So talking about arrhythmias, we mentioned about the sinus arrhythmia. Um, what are the more common ones that you see in ED and how do some of these presentations and even just the conditions differ in adults a bit? Oh, well, I mean, by far the commonest is, you know, an SVT and it's a little bit different in, you know, the presentation is a little bit different, obviously, in babies because often they just get fussy or they get sweaty or they don't feed very well. And it can take a little bit of time to diagnose. One of the differences that sometimes horrifies adult physicians is the way we treat SVT in in very young children. So we do a lot of very dramatic vagal maneuvers in in babies and small kids that you you wouldn't get away with in an adult. And we do it because IV access can be difficult, particularly if they're really tachycardic and they're a little bit shut down. And you know, so we do things like, you know, hold them upside down or stick their heads in a bucket of water or get a bag of ice and hold it on their face for two minutes. And it, it, is, it is like, it's kind of like, oh my God, what are you doing to this poor baby? But it can be actually a lot less traumatic than putting in the drip. And you, you have to remember in kids, once you've given them some adenosine and made them feel like they're going to die, they're not really going to be very keen on having that happen again. If the vagal maneuvers fail and you do need to give adenosine to a kid, I like people to at least think about how to do that in a way that is not going to traumatize them really, really badly. And sometimes you have to walk this fine line between how hemodynamically compromised are they? Are they? Do I need to give them some sedation before I give them the adenosine? Um, just to make sure that next time they come in and I have to give them adenosine again, they're not going to be fighting me off with their fists and trying to, <laughs> you know, push me away. Like everything in pediatrics, the, the 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 overlay of it being a child is actually really really important. And we do take ECGs when we're giving the adenosine. Can you tell me why? Yeah. So part of the rationale is of you know I won't I won't go into too many technical details, but. If you look at the 12-lead ECG when they're in SVT, you can work out a little bit about, you know, where the SVT is coming from. If you have a rhythm strip when they revert, it gives you much more information about what type of SVT it is and where the problem might be. And that's important for the cardiologists when they're thinking about, well, do I want to do an EP study? Do I want to try and do an ablation? Is this child going to be successful on, you know, long-term medication if... They're not quite big enough for me to do the ablation and all, all of those sorts of, you know, in-depth cardiology questions that, that I don't necessarily know all the answers to. But it's really useful for them to have both a 12-lead ECG of when they're in SVT and um, a rhythm strip of what happened during reversion. And it's actually, it actually can be really important to have a rhythm strip of what happens if the reversion doesn't work. because. You know, almost everybody gets the standstill when you give the adenosine, um, and it's what happens afterwards and why the SVT fires up again that can sometimes give them give them the information they need. So it's 
by far preferable to have a rhythm strip on when you do it. Speaking of rhythm strip, is there a reason we don't use just a three lead, one rhythm strip for, let's say, where we feel that, you know, we're diagnosing arrhythmias. Is, mm. is there a reason? I know it's not, wouldn't be documented. It wouldn't make the cardiologist particularly happy because it's, <laughs> it's one view. But I mean, is that a low cost way to... It's like doing half a test, right? Because you only get you only get a handful of the views that you need, and sometimes um, either due to lead placement or the way the child's heart is sitting in their in their chest cavity, the the view that you need isn't in the limb leads. Um, you know, it's in one of the augmented leads, or it's in 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 the chest leads. So you do you um, there's no way around it. You really do need to get you need to get all the views. Make sure that you've satisfied the criteria of the test and you've done the test properly. So if you do a three lead and you see the problem, well, hooray. But if you do a three lead and you don't see anything, you haven't really done the test. So that, that's, that's why we kind of push to get all the leads on, which, you know, as I said earlier, not easy in a kid. Mm. They, they don't like the sticky things. They don't like holding still and they wriggle around a lot. And it can be hard to, to get that good quality, you know, 12 or 15 lead ECG that the cardiologists like to look at. Mm. What's the most interesting ECG you've ever seen in children? Oh, God, I don't know that I can answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the ones that always interest me are the, you know, is this uh, SVT or is it Mm. VT? Those are always like, who the the hell knows? (laughs) Those ones are always really interesting, um, particularly when the rates are really high and it can be really, really hard to tell. Uh, I think those are the ones that always get you thinking the most. Everyone has an opinion. Yep. Sometimes you can't tell till they're in the EP lab either, I would say. Continuing on from arrhythmias, is there any role of ECGs in the toxicology space? In you know, adults, the classic teaching, at least when I was doing it, was that the 12 lead ECG was a cheap, inexpensive screening tool for deliberate self-poisoning and all patients with deliberate self-poisoning should get a 12 lead ECG. Fine. A little bit more difficult in children. Um, obviously, usually it's an accidental ingestion, not a not a deliberate ingestion in the young pediatric population. You're looking for the same things as you are in adults, but we don't always do the 12 lead ECG in all toxicologic cases in kids for those reasons. You know, essentially, you're looking for similar things. So you're looking for evidence of fast sodium channel blockade. Um, you know, where you get widened QRS and bradycardias and VTs and VFs and, you know, more prominent right axis deviation. And it can be a little bit confusing looking at a pediatric ECG where you've got a bit of right axis deviation anyway. If you don't know which one of grandma or grandpa's medications the children have taken, um, the ECG can provide a little bit of a window, but it's usually only when things start going wrong that, that you start getting that information. So, you know, differentiating between calcium channel blockade and beta adrenergic receptor blockade, you know, looking for, you know, decreased AV node conduction and sinus bradycardia. It's important, but usually not the key to diagnosis in kids. Mm. Usually we're fortunate enough that if they have had a significant ingestion, we can spot the bradycardia and the neurologic effects before um, things go wrong. 
What about trauma? So a patient that's had a, a, a blunt force trauma to the chest or MVA, something like that. Yeah, again, so it's similar to in adults, you know, were they driving? Do they have an arrhythmia? Have they had blunt force trauma to their chest? Do they have a cardiac contusion? You know, is the ECG the diagnostic gold standard? Probably not. That probably is a case where you'd kind of look to the troponin going up or going down over a period of time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do the ECG, but... Um, again, because of the nature of pediatric trauma uh, and the differences in you know mechanism and injury severity in kids versus adults, uh, it's probably not something that we see abnormalities in very often. In a lot of cases, I order an ECG to look at the QT interval um, for many different reasons. You mentioned toxicology and, and other things I'm looking for. Um, what's the significance of the QT interval? <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think you're driving at long QT syndrome and the long QT syndromes, which are kind of like a bucket of disorders that they can give you a prolonged QT. The reason we're interested in it is that kind of prolonged ventricular repolarization that the long QT uh, represents predisposes people to malignant ventricular arrhythmia. So that, that's why we think about it. In kids, we often think about it in the context of genetic long QT syndromes, which are caused by a sodium-potassium channel mutations and they, they run in families and that's part of you know the, the family history questions that we were talking about before. You're doing it in kids who have syncope, particularly if it's exercise-induced. But there's actually a big bucket of long QT, reasons for having a long QT. There are many drugs that do it. Um, there's some myocardial disease that can do it. And in kids, again, it's most, the myocardial disease that's most likely to cause it is a surprise, surprise cardiomyopathy. There are some electrolyte abnormalities that can do it. So it is important. And if you see it, you need to talk to someone about it. But what is long QT? Like, what is a long QT is a very controversial question <laughs> and not one I have any intention of getting into <laughs> with any detail today. Part two. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose, you know, classically we say if the corrected QT is longer than about 440 milliseconds, it's difficult. It's dependent on rate and it's dependent on gender and it's dependent on ethnicity and it's dependent on the phases of the moon and all sorts of <laughs> other things. Or star so, sign the patient. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so there are a lot of kids that are in that kind of subtle long QT basket that might need some follow-up. Now, any advice for clinicians new to the pediatric ECG space? Yeah, I definitely would encourage you to sit down with some ECG resources um, because obviously we've only just really touched on on the highlights in in, in the podcast, but... Um, to learn it, you need to sit down with it and think about it a lot. Um, uh, most emergency medicine practitioners would be familiar with Life in the Fast Lane, which is a website that has an excellent um, ECG section and quite a comprehensive pediatric ECG section. There's lots of click-through menus and you can look at examples of ECGs of all the things that we've talked about and many more. In terms of textbook resources, once you've got the basic understanding of the ECG, I actually... When I was learning, and I encourage people to look at lots of ECGs cold and try and interpret them, and although they're, they're focused on um, adult ECG interpretation, they do have pediatric sections. So um, ECGs for the emergency physician, which are, are two volumes by Amal Matu, are just big collections of ECGs with a whole lot of detailed explanation around you know, what the pathophysiology is and what the, you know, how the pathophysiology relates to the ECG findings. 
Um, they're excellent books. And in terms of a book that's a good kind of grounder, a good you know starting starting book to read to learn how to interpret ECGs, I quite like uh, ECG in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care by Chan and Brady. So you know that's a good book that talks about a lot of the principles we talked about at the start, and I think is really good at giving you a kind of a visual interpretation of what you're looking at when you look at the squiggly lines such that if you read that book or sections of that book and then do some practice, I think you can very quickly uh, become very comfortable with even looking at an ECG that's of something you've never seen before because you at least know where the problem is and what the abnormality is, which makes it a lot easier to phone a friend. And other resources, when you start seeing patients, the Royal Children's Hospital has a lot of clinical practice guidelines a lot of the topics that we've talked about, SVT, chest pain, syncope. So that can be accessed on the internet. Thank you very much for your time, John. Really, really appreciate your insights. It's been really interesting. That's okay. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast channel, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Mm-hmm.